Welcome to the Sharon Salzberg Meta Hour. This podcast is a reflection of our connected lives and is dependent on the generosity of you, our listener. So please go to mindpodnetwork.com slash Sharon and either use the donate button or bookmark the Amazon portal through which we will receive a percentage of whatever you purchase from Amazon or sign up for a free trial with audible.com. We thank you for your support in allowing Sharon to continue to share her exquisite heart wisdom. So as Marcia mentioned, sympathetic joy of the four Brahma-viharas is often considered the most difficult. I know some people um, say that it's not a problem for them, and I feel very envious. <laughs> no, <laughs> I feel a lot of sympathetic joy for that because uh, it is a beautiful quality. It's a very beautiful quality, and we all... I think, know that from, even if we don't feel it terribly often ourselves, but from when we have been the recipients of sympathetic joy. When something really good has happened for us, or we're enjoying some success, or um, we're just particularly happy, and, and some people look at us and they are so happy for our happiness, and you can tell, they really are. And it feels like a very great gift is being given to one. Whereas in that same situation of our good fortune or success, somebody else might look at us and they're not so very pleased. You know, no matter what they say, it, it pretty much shows that they're not really all that happy, that we're so happy. And the way that feels and how deflating that is and, and hurtful that is, you can see how very beautiful the quality of sympathetic joy is. If it comes naturally or more naturally, then that's wonderful. If not, and even if so, we have a practice to enhance it and to make it more steadfast, more steady, more enduring. It's considered one of the most difficult because of the very many obstacles that tend to come up in our minds that are our habits of mind that keep us from being able to open to others in this way. One is the state of judgment, which is a big habit. It's very easy to believe, or even at times, in a way to insist that other people should behave the way we want them to, that they should pursue lifestyles and sources of happiness in just the way we've laid out for them in the master plan. And we can actually feel quite disgruntled or frustrated when they just go on and live their lives the way they want to, not the way we want them to. To be non-judgmental doesn't mean to be ridiculous or stupid, you know. It doesn't mean that we practice sympathetic joy when somebody is doing horrific acts and seems to be getting a lot of happiness from them. There's wisdom at the basis of this as well. I'm not talking about somebody who's really hurting themselves or hurting others and, and urging, taking delight in that because they think they're happy. 
But quite different from that, there's a quality of judgment we tend to carry about, which is not just discriminating understanding, but really judgment, which is based on our wanting to be right and to feel right and to feel that certain special something when we're sure we're right. At which point the, the people we are looking at are not really like people, they're more like objects to us at that, at that moment. And from that vantage point, when we're lost in judgment, we can't have sympathetic joy because we are very determined to see things happen our way and we feel quite affronted when they don't. Like, I don't know if you've ever had this experience. I actually had this experience once, more than once, but once that I wrote about. Um, where somebody came to me who was going to take his father on a trip and he wanted to take him to India. And I said, you know, I don't think that's such a good idea. You know, it's very intense over there and, you know, he might get sick and, you know, it's hard and hard things to see. And I mean, it's a wonderful place, but I'm not sure that's where I'd go for a family vacation, you know. And, um, food and you know and I just went on and then the bugs and and uh, he went anyway and his father had like the best time of his entire life you know he absolutely loved it and then he came back and my friend and told me the story and it was an interesting moment you know do I feel happiness and practice happiness for their happiness or do I feel that kind of squeamishness of not having, first not having been listened to, and second of all, having given the wrong advice. <laughs> you know, which was more important, my being right or their being happy? Which is the, the question we confront very often. To practice sympathetic joy, we have to learn to let go somewhat of our judgments, not to demand that the world perform according to our view to recognize that people may choose to live in ways different than what we would choose for them. And again, I'm not talking about people really harming themselves or harming others, but really just questions of choice. Can we actually be happy for them as we see the choices that they are making and if they are genuinely happy themselves? So judgment is the first obstacle that's very common. And the second is comparing, which I talked about last week, that gnawing, painful restlessness that is known in the Buddhist psychology as conceit. No matter what we decide in the act of comparing, it's still that restless state, whether we decide we're better than, equal to, or less than the object of our comparison. If we're looking at somebody in that light, trying to decide who we are compared to them, we just can't feel sympathetic joy for them. I mean, how could we? It's, it feels like it's leaving us with nothing. So we need to learn to not just put another foot down in the same patch of comparison all the time, and to actually aim the mind somewhere else, a different way of relating. And then there's the problem of 
discrimination, of having that group of the few select ones that we really open to, that we really care about, that we perhaps can feel happiness for when they are happy. And then beyond that line, there is the great other. There is everybody else that we really don't want to feel happy for. If we can see that, that we've drawn that line, that we are creating division and separation, then we can relax. We can check in again with our deepest motivation, what we really want more fundamentally. This isn't an act of force. It's not trying to slap a persona on us that we're not really feeling. It's recognizing the tremendous capacity and potential of the human mind, everyone's mind. And to see that we have the possibility of learning to relate in a different way. And in doing that, we can begin to loosen some of the the boundaries that we have erected. So for example, when I was practicing in Burma, when I was doing intensive um, all of the Brahmaviharas actually, for a few months, and I was, begin, was beginning with metta, with loving kindness. And I was asked to, I got to the point in the practice where I was asked to direct metta to a difficult person who, um, in the old style translations from the Buddhist text, is known as the enemy. So it's got a certain melodramatic tone to it. You know, like now you're going to send metta to your enemy. Now, practicing in Burma was very interesting for many reasons. Um, One of which is that it is such a traditional culture. And um, the practice of the Brahma Viharas, and say metta, since that's what I was practicing at the time, is taught in that traditional viewpoint, which is that Um, We practice definitely for the purification of our own minds to transform, and we can, the base of motivation, the reservoir of motivation that we tend to be acting from in life. So if that's been fear, it can become love. If that's been hostility, it can become compassion. So that is, is taught as the primary effect of doing metta. And it's also taught that metta is like a force, it's like an energy. So that you can feel it in a room when people have been practicing it. You can feel it around someone when they've been practicing it. And if you are the recipient of the metta, you can feel it. That it makes a difference, actually. It has the potential to make a difference as this, this energy. It's not to say that it's done with attachment because it needs to be done instead with great equanimity. It's like giving somebody a gift. You know, They may not like it for reasons that have nothing to do with the beauty and the extraordinary quality of generosity that you've just displayed. So you can't say, well, I'm sending you metta so that you will do this or that. But it's a force. It's taught very much so that it's an energy and that a person has the potential of receiving it at any rate. 
So there I was practicing, and I got to the place where I was told, okay, now you know, go back to your room and do metta for an enemy. So I thought of somebody, um, I wouldn't call him an enemy, but I, I thought of somebody that I had some difficulty with, and I began sending the metta, and then I found myself thinking, well, maybe I'd better not choose that person, because you know, what if I get really concentrated and my metta gets very strong? And they are just sitting there, surrounded by these waves of bliss that are just hitting them, all because I am in Burma, where it's 105 degrees, and you know, I am suffering terribly in this place, so they can be happy? I don't think so, you know? <laughs> and then I thought of somebody else that seemed a little bit more palatable <laughs> in that, but my mind came up with the same objection. I mean, after all, this was the list of people I found difficult, you know. And I kept doing that until finally I just had to start laughing at myself. It's the same mind state that says, may almost all beings in the universe be happy. You know, if you just skip over here and there, it would be better. But like metta or loving-kindness, mudita or sympathetic joy is really boundless. It's we who draw the lines that say them and not them. But slowly, as we practice, that, that tremendous force of, of discrimination, of separation, does ease. It does begin to get eradicated. And then we can feel more happiness in the happiness of others. And then we have the habit, very often, of demeaning. And we look at somebody else's happiness or joy and we think, they didn't really deserve it. You know, if I had gotten the trophy, I would have deserved it, but they didn't really deserve it, or they didn't do that well, you know, it was a bad year. So, you know, I mean, they won, but it was almost by default, you know. <laughs> You know, they didn't really deserve it. And I remember once when, uh, uh, one February, when the Winter Olympics were on television, and Sylvia Borstein and I were teaching a course here. And, um, when I'd go home, sometimes I would turn on the television and I would look at the Olympics, and we were completely hysterical at one point because every time a non-American contender was doing something like dancing on ice, the, the announcers would be quite demeaning. You know, and here would be this person dancing on ice, and, and the announcers would say something like, lacks artistry. <laughs> and you'd think, give me a break. <laughs> you know, the person is doing this incredible feat. But just time after time after time, just looking for what was wrong, for what was at fault, what wasn't good enough, what could be what could be put down in this particular performance? It's an amazing trait that's not that unfamiliar. And again, it's like being determined not to be trapped in the same old ways. We see those habits of mind coming. And we don't have to dislike ourselves for them or get angry about it, but we don't have to go further and further and further and further into the same kind of habit. Really, it comes because we feel deprived, we feel resentful, we feel embittered in some way that we don't have enough and therefore we need to put others down in order to feel better. But that's all based on 
an idea of the good things in life being static and owned, that they're possessed by others. It doesn't have to be in a material sense. It could be a quality like faith or love. You know, someone else has it and I don't. To counteract that, we practice generosity. And most particularly in uh, this tradition, we practice generosity in the form of sharing merit, which I don't know if anyone's talked about that before, but um, merit is another one of those words that's a little strange, but because it doesn't mean stuff. It's not like something that's stored somewhere in a, a warehouse or a storehouse. But merit is, it's a little bit like the meta um, quality that I was just talking about. It's the belief that when we turn our mind to the good and when we do an action that honors that, that alliance, that connection with goodness, then it generates a force. It generates an energy that's real. That's called merit. So that in Burma, when somebody comes to offer a meal, they experience that as an act that's very meritorious. And then they share the merit at the end. They offer it. They dedicate it. Um, Very often it's dedicated to someone who's died because it's believed very strongly that it's a force, a quality of energy that um, cuts through the loss of connection through the physical body. And it's shared, the merit is shared with all beings everywhere. So that when we act to the good, it's not just for us. It's never just for us. It's that recognition that our happiness is also for the sake of others. If we can practice that, then their happiness does not seem so much a threat to us, but really part of the same continuum. So it's very traditional in Buddhism to share the merit at the end of a sitting, at the end of a day, certainly at the end of a retreat, at the end of an act of generosity, and to actually feel the energy of the goodness. It's not yours personally, but it's moving through you in a sense. And to offer that, to dedicate that to those who've helped you, to those who need help, to all beings everywhere, so that you're continually cycling in that way. And the merit comes from from that intention or that alliance. It doesn't come, say, for example, sometimes people will say, I don't know if I got any merit out of this retreat, you know, because uh, I couldn't concentrate at all. It doesn't come from something like concentration. It comes from the fact that you sat here comes from the fact that you tried. It comes from the fact that you began again the millionth time when your mind wandered. That's where the force is. That's the movement of the mind toward the good. If we practice something like sharing merit, then those lines we draw between the special few and all of the others will begin to fall away. And we begin to see more that In fact, we are all connected. We are all working together in some strange way, some unfathomable way toward toward happiness or toward freedom. 
we may be the one performing the action, but it needs to be connected to an understanding of how fragile all beings are. And here is the, the main ally of <clears throat> sympathetic joy, which is compassion. Since everything is so very tenuous and changing all of the time, we can look at somebody and their great good fortune But everything in life in this world is like a house of cards. It's all conditions coming together, which could change. So we look at somebody almost with the heartfelt wish, like, may you enjoy it, because it's likely not forever, not undiluted, not unhindered. Upandita, when I was practicing, when I got through metta and compassion and was practicing sympathetic joy, he gave me this exercise in Burma. He said, imagine you're sitting in a room and your enemy is sitting there in a chair in front of you. And the whole room is crowded with other people, all of whom you like, then all of these people that you like are heaping praise on this person that you don't like. And then he said, how do you feel? (laughs) That was my exercise. And it's difficult, but the truth is that compassion is our doorway. That's how we get there. Because nobody is immune from change and distress and disturbance and suffering in life. Nobody. In fact, there are very few beings that we would look at sitting in that imaginary chair and think, may you only suffer. May you never have an occasion of of openness, of freedom, of release. It doesn't serve us, just as it doesn't serve them to only suffer. And if we can remember the truth of things and the quivering or the trembling of the heart, which is compassion, then it will guide us through to sympathetic choice that we will appreciate and take delight in the happiness and the good fortune of others. We will be glad that beings are experiencing this. This is also what we work for not only for ourselves, but for them too. And compassion and sympathetic joy are a great balance for one another. They complement one another. Mudita reminds us of joy. It reminds us of the existence of happiness when we're lost in sorrow. And compassion reminds us of the existence of pain when we're lost in denial. If we only look toward what's good and pleasant and happy, then it can easily degenerate into a sort of sentimentality. And if we only look towards what's difficult and what's painful and what's wrong in the world, 
we'll get crushed. We won't actually be able to have compassion because we'll just be overwhelmed. And so we need to be able to turn our attention to look at the joy, to see the small things in life, the flowers growing by the side of the road, in order to balance out that tendency to look at the suffering. So they will guard each other, they will reinforce each other and take care of each other. I think I'll close with this um, quotation, which reminds me very much of this the sense of, of oneness and connection, which is the basis of being able to practice sympathetic joy. It's from Susan Griffin, and the um, text is called Woman and Nature. And she writes, We say that you cannot divert the river from the riverbed. We say that everything is moving, and we are part of this motion the soil is moving, that the water is moving. We say that the earth draws water to her from the clouds. We say the rainfall parts in each side of the mountain like the parting of our hair, and that the shape of the mountain tells where the water has passed. We say this water washes the soil from the hillsides, that the rivers carry sediment, that rain, when it splashes, carries small particles, that the soil itself flows with water and streams underground. We say that water is taken up into the roots of plants, into stems, that it washes down hills into rivers, that these rivers flow to the sea, that from the sea and the sunlight this water rises to the sky. This water is carried into clouds and comes back as rain, comes back as fog, comes back as dew, as wetness in the air. We say everything comes back. You cannot divert the river from the riverbed. We say every act has its consequences. This place has been shaped by the river, and the shape of this place tells the river where to go. We say, look how the water flows from this place and returns as rainfall. Everything returns, we say, and one thing follows another. There are limits, we say, on what can be done, and everything moves. We are all a part of this motion, we say, and the way of the river is sacred, and this grove of trees is sacred, and we ourselves, we tell you, are sacred. Thank you for listening to the Sharon Salzberg Meta Hour. We really do appreciate your support and hope you will continue that support by going to mindpodnetwork.com slash Sharon and clicking on the donate button or by using our amazon.com portal for all of your purchases. Namaste.